The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 20th chapter. In the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. The Gospel of the Lord. I thank Pastor Leslie for the chance to be here. This is my third chance, so I guess three strikes, you're out. So I've got to do well today. What do you all think of when you hear stewardship? Because this is a stewardship Sunday. What comes to mind when you think of stewardship? Giving. Giving. Giving, what else? Serving. Serving. Anybody else want to share anything? What stewardship is all about? Yes, a steward is someone who takes care, a steward is someone who takes care of things, manages them. Anything else? Stewardship. Well, today your pastors asked me to talk about stewardship, and uh, I understand why, because I've done this before. This is not unusual on Pledge Sunday to have another pastor come in and give the sermon. And in fact, we used to do this a lot. But a lot has changed in the last 20 or 30 years, and so we don't do it as much as we used to. Back in 1996, when I came to San Antonio, there were 10 ELCA congregations in Bexar County that had two or more pastors. Ten of them. St. John's, Grace, Christ, MacArthur Park, Abiding Presence, Shepherd King, House of Prayer, Hope, St. Andrew, and Zion Holotus. That meant we had 10 extra pastors who could conceivably go somewhere else to preach on a Sunday. And so what we did was we had a, a plan. And it so happens that 20 years ago today, I was assigned to go to Zion of Lotus. And someone from over there went somewhere else, and I don't know how we had it, but anyway, everybody had a fresh face on Stewardship Sunday, so the local pastor didn't have to ask people to give more money to the budget, much of which went to the pastor's salary. Well, I went back and looked at what I said at Zion of a Lotus 20 years ago. Because stewardship has changed like a lot of other things in the last 20 or 30 years. And when I went out there, they had pledge cards, but they did not do time and talent sheets with them. 
So that's more of a 21st century thing, kind of modern. But I had my sermon on how to get people to give more money. And out there, 20 years ago, I reminded them that there is a difference between stewardship and fundraising. Now, in those days, those of you who are around, remember, we had fundraising going all the time. Those of us who are on the district council of the old Southern District or on the new Senate Council of the Senate, we had agencies asking us, when can we come in your congregation and ask for money? And we'd say, okay, this year Lutheran Social Service can come in, next year camping can come in, the year after that TLU, the year after that the seminaries. They were lined up. Yet everybody knew what fundraising was all about, and we were to generate as much money as possible. So when I went out to Holotus that day, I said, now there is a difference between stewardship and fundraising. And I used the story of the widow's might that we had this morning. And I said, fundraising is measured by how much people give. And of course, in a fund appeal, you like the big givers. Stewardship is measured by how little you hold back, which would appeal to the widow. And then I went on and used an analogy that may not be quite as appropriate now as it was then. Back in the 20th century, families used to have breakfast together more than now. That was before Starbucks and all the other fast food places. And a common breakfast menu back in those days, it probably still is in many homes, was bacon and eggs. Anybody here ever had bacon and eggs in the morning? Okay, we've got some 20th century people here. Well, I made a point. It takes two animals to give you bacon and eggs. But their roles are very different. One animal makes a contribution. The other animal makes a sacrifice. For the chicken, there's always going to be more where it comes from. Just wait till tomorrow. And in many ways, the chicken is like the rich people. You know, they come with their bags of money. They're not going to miss it. But then there's the pig. That poor pig has to make a sacrifice. And the poor widow had to make a sacrifice. And what I said to the people in a lotus 20 years ago, and it still in many ways applies now, when it comes to stewardship, I want you to be pigs, I don't want you to be chickens. Make a sacrifice that means something. Now, things have changed dramatically since the 20th century. In fact, I've been reading recently that within the church, we have had more change in the last 20 or 30 years than in any comparable period since the Reformation. That's how fast our world is changing. But what is scary is that in a typical Lutheran church, most people have done no serious Bible or catechism study since the 20th century. And so we're in a 21st century world with many people still thinking it's the 20th century. And we're trying to put it together. How do we make it work? And we see the changes all around us. For instance, back in the 90s, we had 10 congregations that could afford two or more pastors. Right now, we have abiding presence in Zion Holotus, and I, if I do a good job, Christ Lutheran gets to be added to the list. We're down to three. It's a very different world. Back in those days, we didn't have the number of churches today that can't even afford a pastor. Our bishop told us this week, 
in the southwestern Texas Senate, 60%, three out of five congregations, can no longer afford their own pastor. That's true across the ELCA. And the similar statistics are being found in our six sister mainline denominations. The Methodist, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, United Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, and American or Northern Baptists. Those are the churches that we are part of that we're all considered mainline Protestants. That has changed. Another change is mainline Protestants have lost tremendous influence in our country. Time was when virtually the entire Supreme Court was made up of Protestants. Up until a few years ago, we had zero Protestants on the Supreme Court. And the court today is dominated by Jews and Catholics. That has changed. But also our proportions have changed dramatically. Because today, there are more than twice as many Roman Catholics in this country as there are mainline Protestants. We're in the minority. There are more than twice as many Pentecostals, non-denominationals, as there are mainline Protestants. We're in the minority. And today there are more than twice as many unchurched, nuns as they're now called, as there are mainline Protestants. You see, part of our history as Lutheran people, through the 20th century, we wanted to become mainline American churches. And we spent much of the 20th century learning English. Because, you see, we're the only major Protestant church body that did not come to this country already speaking English. And learning English was a big deal for us. We have a church in Austin, First English. We had one in Victoria, a First English. Here in San Antonio, Grace was really our first English Lutheran church. We wanted to be a part of the Protestant majority. We tried very hard to get there. Where we're there now. We have agreements with most of these other denominations, and they love us and we love them. But the problem is there aren't very many of us left. And one of the real challenges I have, and I'm sure your pastor has and everyone else has, is if people cannot come to church on a Sunday, if they're shut in or they're traveling, who can we recommend they watch on television? I can't think of much of anybody because they're in a very different place than where we are. We've lost influence. And in many ways, the church today is more like the church of the first century than the church of the 20th century. We're more like the church of the first century than the church of the 20th century. That's how much things have changed. And that's not all bad. Because what we're having to do now is we can go back to Scripture. And the Bible is becoming alive again for us. You know, for a while, while we were trying to become mainstream, we didn't want to talk too much about the Bible because we didn't want to be fundamentalist. We didn't want to misuse the Bible. And we know what that's all about, and we've seen it. I was here a month or so ago when you were having your Sunday school conversation about gays and lesbians, and people were pointing out how certain verses have been used as clubs against gays for many years. When Lynn and I came to Texas and started introducing the idea of women pastors, the Bible was being used as a club then. It was a different group of verses. But it was amazing what people found saying in the Bible why women couldn't be pastors. You've got the famous passages in Timothy that women should be silent and should have no authority over men. But the best one to me was the Garden of Eden. Women could not be pastors because Eve caused Adam to sin and not vice versa. 
And furthermore, Eve was put down because she was naked, as if he wasn't at that time. That's how the Bible has been abused. And in fact, we've done it against others as well. Because you see, when you're among the rich and the powerful, and that's what you're trying to be, it's hard to bring good news to the poor. Jesus says, I come to bring good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind. He's here for those who need help, but often we've misinterpreted that, and we've not said much about it. You know, in the scriptures, there's a lot about economics, but we, for many years, didn't want to talk about economics. You go through the parables of Jesus, well over half of them, including almost all the real popular ones, deal with wealth, deal with money. The prodigal son goes off and wastes his money. The good Samaritan uses money and gives it to the innkeeper. You've got the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the lost coin. Lots and lots about money, about economics, and about stewardship. And there's a lot in the Bible, too, that has political implications that we didn't talk about much. You know, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're making a political statement. When we say Jesus is Savior, that's a political statement. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, that's a political statement. Jesus was crucified rather than stoned. That's a political issue. And even the virgin birth has political implications. But we haven't talked much about that. Because, you see, we wanted to be a part of the powerful majority. But now we're at a different place, and we're looking at these passages differently. And we're realizing that we need to look at them through the eyes of the poor and the oppressed. And one such passage is the widow's might. You know, I preached out in Helotus 20 years ago. I just looked at the first four verses of chapter 21. Today I had Pastor Leslie include the verses before and the verses after. Because one thing we're learning in the scriptures, we've got to look at things in context. And we used to brag about how great the widow was. She gave everything she had to the synagogue. Or we would say today she gave everything she had to the church. But what we didn't say 20 years ago is the reason she had so little to give in the first place was because she had been abused and oppressed by the religious establishment of the time. She was being asked to give back to the institution that had hurt her. And I'm sure many of you have heard about the widow's might over the years, but you probably didn't hear about those verses that come immediately before it because they put it in a different context. Because we realize religious institutions can also be oppressive. Political institutions can also be oppressive. And we're dealing with that today. Last Saturday night, I needed to get some work done, so I went to my church office in Edinburgh, I thought I'd be safe on a Saturday night working at church on a project until a member shows up. Now, pastors know what happens if someone sees them in the church office on Saturday night. Aha, pastor hasn't done his homework. He doesn't have a sermon prepared. And back in the days before your pastor was born, we used to call those Saturday night specials. So when a pastor would get together and come up with something to say, knowing the next day the congregation expected him or her to say something. So, of course, I had to explain I'm not really working on a sermon, because I wasn't, but I had another project. And it has political implications. Bishop Briner and I were sending back ideas on what can we say to the Senate Assembly in a few weeks about immigration and about what's happening in Washington. And that's tough these days. Because we realize, how can we say that we're for justice and morality 
and honesty and yet not offend people who don't want us to get too partisan. It's a tricky world, and I would encourage you, remember your religious leaders. The trying times we're having in Washington just aren't among Republicans and Democrats, but among varieties of groups of people. People in other countries trying to sort it all out. It's not easy, but we need to say a word of grace. We need to say what the gospel means in our world. That's also true in the church. We have to admit sometimes the church has been oppressive. Now, I know many of you who have been in Texas for a long time know we have been trying for decades to increase the number of minorities in our churches. We've had quota systems. We've had new programs. We've tried all kinds of things to increase the number of minorities, including Hispanics in our churches. And today we remain the whitest Protestant denomination in America. Something hasn't worked. And I've had people come up to me and say, Paul, why is the denomination sending you down to Edinburgh to work with migrants if you can't speak their language? How are you going to convert them and make them Lutherans if you can't talk their language? Good question. A 20th century question, perhaps. Because, you see, the answer I give to them is, I'm not down there to convert anybody. I'm down there to help the denomination figure out how we can serve these people and meet their needs. Membership gain is not our top priority. You see, we realize that sometimes we have also been part of this oppression. Sometimes we've made mistakes and we need to change. I looked at your stewardship material today. I don't know who prepared this stuff. Whoever did, did an excellent job. You have excellent balance in what you're trying to do. You're asking people to give money to the church, and you're also suggesting ways that they can serve in the community. I wish more churches were that balanced. And by the way, on the uh, gifts, what you might use in the community, the uh, San Antonio Sponsored Committee has a soft spot in my heart, so I would hope some of you would sign up for that. But you know, that hasn't always been true. Anybody here have any ties to the old Zion Lutheran Church on Cincinnati? We're on the near northwest side. A number of years ago, that congregation needed to close. And Bishop Tiemann asked me to go in there along with a CPA and an attorney. Now, closing down a congregation is not easy. I mean, who gets the advent wreath? I'm serious, you're getting all kinds. Who can get the extra hymnals that weren't given in honor of somebody specifically? And so we had to work with them. And we closed that church down, but we realized as we went through it, part of the problem there is that they had not had a full understanding of stewardship. They were still kind of back in the 20th century. Now, we did a lot with the property. We used the assets to pay off the Senate office building in Seguin. Part of the chapel at Ebert Ranch was paid for by Zion Lutheran Church of San Antonio. They gave scholarships to TLU. Excellent use of their resources. And we helped them get through that. But there's a lot of caring that needs to be done. And I realized that that church had never really learned how to reach out. They're in a changing neighborhood. But they hadn't been able to really reach out. And I remember talking with one member of that church who was very fraught and sad that the church was closing, and was saying to me, we failed. Now, I thought they were saying we failed because we're the last church on the west side, or because we really didn't do what we wanted to do. 
His understanding of failure was this. The church had never gotten a pipe organ. Status symbol in the 20th century. Churches I grew up in Houston, the same kind of a status symbol. But you see, what had happened there, unfortunately, is people saw what can we do with the gifts that are given to us. How can we use them for ourselves? There wasn't near enough what we can do for others. And today on your Stewardship Sunday, you're asking what you can do for others. I also asked Pastor Leslie today to include the ending verses, which are the verses that come after the widow's mite. Talks about the church in decline and how the temple was going to be torn down. Many people today think the church is in transition and may be torn down. But actually, I think it's a different kind of a change. You know, if we go through history, we found about every 500 years, the church has gone through a major transition. We're living through one now. The first one was in the 4th century when Constantine decided Christianity would be the religion of the Roman Empire and everybody had to become Christian. Big change when the church suddenly was not being persecuted but was part of the in-crowd. Are you taking the 11th century when we split between the East and the West, the Catholics and the Orthodox? Big change. 16th century, Reformation. We just celebrated the 500th anniversary of that a couple years ago. We're going through a similar change today. The church isn't what it used to be, and it probably won't be the same in 10 or 20 years. And that can be scary, but it also can be enlightening. Because you see, we've so often said we want people to support the institution. But that's not what young people want. You know, you look around, a lot of churches have less attendance, but it's not just churches that have been suffering. Bowling leagues aren't as popular, PTAs are not, labor unions, Masonic lodges, Kiwanis clubs, all kinds of groups that join, people aren't joining anymore. Why? Because people aren't interested in institutions, they're interested in doing something. They want to actually help the poor. And when you're saying to your people, look, here are some ways you can actually help people, that's going to attract people to you. We may actually come out ahead as we go through this transition. And there's another interesting thing about the verses today. In those first verses, the people are criticized for being too formal, too concerned about worship. You know, if you go through the Bible, there's a lot of that. In the Old Testament, the prophets were concerned about all the solemn assemblies, but the neglect of justice. In the verses we read on Ash Wednesday, people were being called hypocrites for spending so much time in prayer and not caring for the poor. The same thing is happening today. Because in a lot of churches, the temptation is to think it's all about worship and not about anything else. It's all about us and not about them. You know, one of the reasons that I'm able to come down here once a month or half for the last few months is because as a transitional pastor, I am not to stay in that same church all Sundays every month. I am required to get out of town at least one Sunday a month so that they don't get dependent upon me. Because a lot of churches think, well, if we've got a preacher on Sunday morning, we don't need to do anything else. No. And in our parochial reports that your pastor fills out and I fill out, we have to say not only what our worship attendance is, but how many people are actually active in the life of the church. Because in most congregations today, there are a lot of people doing things in a church who never come to worship. Worship attendance doesn't tell the whole story. And so we're reminded to reach out to reach out with justice, to reach out to folks who are hurting. Today is Pledge Sunday. Today you make some decisions. Yes, I hope you will be good 20th century stewards. I hope you will be pigs and not chickens. This 
church needs a strong Christ Lutheran church. But I hope you will also be 21st century stewards. Concern for justice, concern for those who are poor, concern for those who are hurting. You know, the people at Zion, the one that closed, were concerned that they had not been successful. They had to close and they considered that as a failure. Do you know how many times in the New Testament Christians are told to be successful? Anybody know? Zero. In fact, the words success and successful don't even appear in the New Testament in some translations. But there's another word that appears over 60 times. We're not told to be successful, but what are we told to be over 60 times, you think? Faithful. Faithful to the gospel. Faithful to the proclamation of what the gospel is. Today I encourage you, yes, you want to be successful, but be faithful. Look at what God has done for you. Times have changed. The 20th century is gone. We're in a new era. But this is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.